Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. In the previous podcast, I discussed the State of the Union for the Premier League. And there was a couple of points that I made that I wasn't really able to go into huge detail on because it's quite an overarching topic. And so the first one really that I want to go into more detail today is the concept that the Champions League isn't quite as interesting as it was. That currently at the moment, the last few years have been a little bit underwhelming. And I think what you, you, the, the issue is, it's not so much that the, the, the teams aren't good. They are. The players aren't brilliant. Well, we've got Messi, Ronaldo, any number of great. Or, and that it's not that... What what it's lacking, really, is a sort of narrative. And I think that's what the... the, the when the Champions League and the U- European Cup is at its zenith, is when there is a, a narrative a sense of why we're all here, why we're all watching it. So I think you sort of need to almost delve down into history to really get to why the Champions League is so, and the European Cup is so important. So you you always have to begin the the European Cup as Real Madrid. You start, because they're the first great team. They win the first five editions of it. They're amazing. They've got a great team, fantastic individuals. And, you know, they basically just get the tournament off to some sense of magnificence and, and interest that rest of the, the Europe was able to, you know, jump into. So, in other words, the argument is, who will stop them? So, in other words, you have all these different clubs from different countries, and they, you know, that's the, the thing. Can they be beaten? And, and who will beat them? So, they get supplanted by a younger Benfica, and it happens in, in the, I believe it's a 61 Cup final, European Cup final between Madrid, who've won it for all those years, but they're slightly aging. You've got a younger, very powerful Benfica, you know, led by Eusebio, and the manager at halftime basically says, "You're going, you know, you're losing at the moment, but you're going to win this. You're stronger, you're younger, you're fitter than them," and they go ahead and win. And so, and then Benfica win it the next year. So it's like the real question, underlying question is, okay, now Madrid have been supplanted. Will Benfica dominate? Because now you've had the, you know, seven years of this tournament and you've only had two teams win. And then they get supplanted by the Italian system. So you've, you know, it's all, you know, Cantonacchio. And that's a little bit reductive that, you know, Italian teams did attack. But, you know, the con, you know it does work as an explainer of, you know, the Italian teams start doing a lot, you know, start doing really well. And so then the real sort of underlying question is, so, OK, well... Who and how can you beat this system? Which then leads you to the sort of 67 European Cup final. Celtic beat in, you know, Inter Milan. They're not expected to. And they do it in a slightly different way. They're very hard running. They're very attacking. They're quite, no, not overtly physical, but there's an, you know, they're not overawed by them. You've then got Man United win it in 68. So you, you've got a sort of new era of British dominance. You also have to factor in the 66 World Cup final. Because that means, and, you know, England won. So you've now got a situation where, you know, the, you know, the footballing world has now pivoted within at the back end of the 60s towards <coughs> Great Britain and, you know, English clubs. And British clubs as well. But then that then gets changed by you have the sort of the rise of total football and Ajax. You know, they win, you know, 71, 72, 73. You know, they've got great individuals, a great system, a fantastic manager. You've got Cruyff. You know, you've got a, st- you know, a style. And it then goes, well, who's going to beat them? 
And then you've, you've got, that's then matched by the rise of Bay, Bayern Munich and Beckenbauer. So it's an individual system. You know, you've got the, seven, you know, the underlying element of the 74 World Cup final. It's in West Germany. It's between West Germany and Holland. The great Dutch total football team, they kick off and they score before Germany even touched the ball. But then the Germans win. And you know they they have co- they co-opt elements of total football, but bring, make it their own, and then they win three in a row. So you say, well, who can beat them? That's then the the real question. It's then supplanted by you've got the the rise of British clubs and Clough, and so it's system and great men. So there's there's always all of those teams do something slightly different. All of the great teams, so you know Madrid, Benfica, you know. They, they do different things so they're not all it's not just one great team another great team they all do things slightly differently and so as a result you've now got the thing of well okay who's going to beat the English teams because you know what you have is it's not so much that Liverpool any one of those great Liverpool teams that won were brilliant it was more on the fact that they basically were able you know one manager went, the next one would then do brilliantly well in Europe. Then the next one after that would do brilliantly well in, in Europe. And you've then got Clough, who can then basically take, you know, he starts, you know, with Derby, takes them pretty close. He then, you know, he then goes to another fairly unfashionable English team and wins it back to back. You then have Aston Villa, you know, basically coming from nowhere that win it. Yeah, and that then adds, you know, a whole wrinkle, you know. <clears throat> Obviously, you then have you know Heisel and the, the European ban, and that really sort of cuts that off. But what that then brings is, and you, know, I suppose the eighties in its own footballing way is quite an outlier of a sort of decade. You know, in the seventies, you know, you've got basically, you know, Ajax, Holland, Bayern, Germany. And that sort of dominates, you know, a fair amount of the, and so it's more, it's very, you've got these competing senses of how to play football. Very similar, then they sort of overlap to an extent. You know, in the 60s, you've kind of got, you know, the difference between, you know, what was considered Latin. So in other words, you know, Real, Benfica, and the Italians, and they, they do things slightly differently, but, and then that's counterparted by the English teams, the British teams, and how they play. With the with the 80s, what you sort of get is is that the later 80s and the early 90s, there's, it's, you know, the 80s in terms of a, a decade, there, there isn't a huge amount of money put into the infrastructure. And you've still got the Iron Curtain. Yeah, there, there's, mo- you know, players are moving around, but they're still, you know, in Italy, you've still got a limit on how many foreign players you can have in a team. In you know, England, there's not a, sh- you know, you've, you've had, it's only in dribs and drabs. You know, you haven't really had the revolution of the Premier League where foreign players and foreign managers start to really have an influence. And you've still got an, a sense of the... Because of the lack of infrastructure spending, what you end up is that you still have the concept of if you're, you know, basically you have teams that, you know, so in, you know, Panathinaikos play, end up getting to the European Cup final. You know, you have Saint-Étienne. So in other words, it's not huge teams. You know, you have the, the, the success of the Scottish teams in the 80s and the late 70s. 
there is a way that basically, because you don't have huge squads, because no one's spending ridiculously huge amounts of money, is that if you have a system and a manager, <clears throat> and if you're able to get the best Scottish players playing for one team, you know, the best Belgian players, you know, you, there's a way for those, and that's where it's interesting. It, it is, you know, ah, can our boys play against their boys? So you've then got, you know, Stal Bucharest win it in 86. You've got Red Star Belgrade win it in 91. Because basically, you know, with Red Star, you've got these fantastic, you know, generation of players. And it's, yeah, that's the thing. So it can be generational. So there's a great generation of Greek players. Then a Greek team will, you know, have a potential to get to a European Cup. <clears throat> they might not win it, but they're, you know, there's a certain amount of churn and, and difference. And it... So I suppose the, and then you end up with Marseille winning it in ninety three. So you've got the sort of rise of the outsiders. Like, is this the future? You know, even in the late nineties, you had the sort of great Dynamo Kiev team. That you know, where you know you've got Valery Luban, Lubanovsky's you know style. So there, there is a certain amount of, it's globalization is sort of coming, and like you know the rise of like you know the concept of the what you know like the monetary markets and the, the EU as it is now. But it's not quite there yet. So there is still a difference in, you know, when you go across the Iron Curtain, <coughs> there's a difference in styles. And, you know, there isn't a huge amount of analytics, which makes it kind of quite interesting. And, you you know, the underdog can topple. In other words, Dundee United can win away at the new Camp. You know, Real Madrid can lose to a Scottish team. It's that kind of principles. So you've got the rise of the outside, but that's kind of overlapped with the rise of Serie A. And this is when the modern football starts to come out. So really what you have is you have the rise of Serie A, but it's not just that. It's what's this, the overall strength of the league, the amount of finance that they're putting in. You know, you've got the, the players and the managers, and it's really the first time that economics is a major factor. In other words, with Ajax, they just have a load of great Dutch players, and it's a Dutch system, you know... With the you know Bayern similar principle, you have a bunch of great players, great you know, and the leader in Beckenbauer, but it's sort of German. Whereby in the late eighties and early nineties, it's slightly different. You know, in Italian football, you've got as I've mentioned in the previous one, you know, you get Dutch players, you get German players. You you know, they're starting. You know, you have a couple of foreign managers like Zenit Zeman and in Serie A, and so then it's like, well, who can beat them? You you still got you know some outliers. So you have got the ninety five European Cup where you basically have you know the, the great Ajax team, and they win, and you have a sort of fantastic Barcelona team under you know, Johan Cruyff. But they sort of fall away. In other words, they can just you know on a given day they can beat an Italian team. They do in ninety two against Sampdoria, but by the time you get to sort of ninety four, they get battered by AC Milan. And yes, what you have is you have the fantastic Ajax team, but they're, they're slightly different. If you compare the 95, they're a lot younger. You know, they're, it's a more diverse. In other words, it's, you know, you've got players that are, you know, coming from Africa and playing for Ajax. So it's, you know, it's comparable because they're basically the same principle. They're both playing really great football. You know, you have Prince Michael, you have Louis van Gaal. And they're playing, you know, the, the Dutch way, but it's slightly different because in the end, what happens is that that Dutch, the you know, the Ajax team, they all, 
you know, they, they start to leave in dribs and draps. In other words, you know, Overmars ends up going to Arsenal. You know, Clivert goes to Barcelona. You know, Van der Sar, you know, they all end up, you know, th- that team gets broken up pretty quickly. So they're not able to, you know, compete in the same way. So in other words, yeah, even if the fact is they were young enough, if they'd all stayed together, they'd probably spend a bit more money, but they don't have that, you know, ability to compete. So they don't win multiples, they just win one, the team gets broken up, they all then, you know, scatter about the various European leagues. Which then, you know, and so for the 90s, we all, you know, that's considered the Serie A decade. And but at the right at the end of it, you then have the re-emergence of Real Madrid and what be, sort of ended up becoming known as the Galacticos. And the real question was, well, who can beat them? So it's, you know, the economics and globalisation has, has sneaked in and is seeping in and it's changing football. But at the same time, you've still got, you can still... It's still linked. In other words, you can basically plot it. <laughs> you know, you've still, you know, in other words, what was so different, you know, in the late nineties than the late fifties? You've still got a dominant Real Madrid team winning. You know, you also have, you know, very strong Italian league, you know, and you know, British teams are still, you know, either you know, on the outside looking in. Start, you know, late nineties, start the two thousands. You get the rise of British clubs, and really, what it then becomes is not just so much. Ah, well, it's a question of can you beat their physicality, their system, but it's also the money. It's the emergence of the Premier League as a, you know, this entertainment, you know, global entertainment, you know, bizarre, you know, bizarre, really. So it becomes a huge league in emerging markets. It's very, you know, it's very financial. And as a result, it's just, it changes the axis of European football. In other words, you, you've always had Real Madrid being huge and big, but at the same time, they a lot of the other out. So Serie A starts to realise, and you know La Liga, that the Premier League has stolen a march on them in terms of TV money, exposure, the way how it's run. Which is why you know, you've now got La Liga in terms of the timings of the game is designed in certain ways so that. Foreign markets can watch games easier at a better, a more easier time. You've got the sense of you know trying to get you know, smaller stadiums in Italy, football specific ones, so the atmosphere looks good, so that you know for, so people watching you know in different countries can see a full stadium with all of the kind of atmosphere. Whereby in the nineties, most of the stadiums have running tracks. You know they were sort of they weren't owned by the clubs, so as a result. Even if you have 50,000 people in the Stadio Olimpico, there's still 20,000, 30,000 empty seats. And so what then happens, really, you've then got the rise of Pep and Messi. Who can beat them? Who can beat their genius? You've then got the, you know, who can beat Real Madrid's financial dominance, you know, Ronaldo. But by this point... What you've got is is that it, it's almost like a sort of golf tennis met- metaphor. In other words, you know, I, th- I think when you th- look at golf, what you, you sometimes you, you always have periods when you have great players. But I think what golf is always l- desperate for is to have two golfers battling it out. So in other words, you always have those you know, the great stories of you know Tom Watson down the the last back nine of a major, you know, battling it out with. Um, Jack Nicholas, and so as a result, but so in your mind, you, you almost in a way want that to be always the case. 
But in the end, it never quite works out that way because there's four different majors. So in other words, you could easily win one, you could win the PGA, but the other one could win the Open. But if you're not in both in form at the same time, you might, you know, Watson might you know, be ten shots ahead of Nicholas at the Open, but then Nicholas might be 15 shots ahead of Watson at the at Augusta. In other words, they both won a, a major, but it's not produced that sort of narrative. It's a little bit like um, with tennis, when you had the, the, the great four of the last few years. In other words, they were so much better than everybody else, nobody else, you know, you'd barely be lucky to get to a final or a semi-final. But we all sort of ended up knowing, you know, not quite knowing the result, but it would be like, okay, well, we know that, you know, Federer is better than Nadal on grass, but Nadal's much better than Federer on clay. You know, Andy Murray can get to a final, but in general will probably end up losing, you know, he he would end up losing to Federer, but at the same time you knew he was that much younger, so if he kept at it, eventually Federer would age, at which point Murray would then be at his peak and that's really what's has sort of happened is that the Messi Ronaldo rivalry hasn't really been that compelling because in the end they've both won enough they both won their Ballon d'Ors they both won loads of leagues okay Ronaldo hasn't won that many you know, La Ligas but he's won loads of Champions League so and Messi's won everything they all scored but they've never really you know you've had the Messi under when he was under Pep just steamrolling it. But now, you know, big, you know, things have slightly changed. And you've had a situation where, you know, Ronaldo's now won, you know, possibly if they win not tomorrow on Saturday against Juve, they'd have won three European Cups out of four. But they've never really been that great at the same time. So they've never had a situation where, you know, you've had a, you've never had a Barca, Real final. You've had a semi-final, but it didn't, in the end, that there was the knowledge that, Barca would end up winning Champions Leagues and Real would. And there's more than enough years for both of them that, in the end, they're both going to end up being successful. But it's never as head-to-head as you want. In other words, even when they go head-to-head for the Spanish League, the result is, well, one might finish top, one might finish second. But they've all qualified for the Champions League. It's, you know, it's bragging rights is important, but at the same time, you know, for years and years and years, Real were obsessed with getting La Decima, whereby Barcelona, you know, winning leagues was great. If they won the Champions League as well, fantastic. But, you know, it wasn't, you know, only, you, know, you I suppose you think, well, okay, well, Mourinho sort of toppled, you know, Barcelona. But by that point, Barcelona was slightly, you know, they needed a rejig, which, you know, Enrique gives. But even, and as a result, you know, now... Real have got to, it's it's just not quite as satisfying and I suppose the, the theory of unexpected un, unintended consequences is that because they have you know hoovered up a load of European cups you've then had you know the rise of dominant domestic clubs to try and fight that so in other words you've had PSG with the Qatari money you've had Juve with their organization in Italy and the, the, the slight weakening of Serie A and you've had Bayern in Germany. So the only way that they can basically, you know, these three outfits can compete is to spend a lot of money in PSG's case, you know, organise themselves, you know, in terms of infrastructure, if you're talking about Juve and intelligent signings, and, you know, buy in, or probably a bit of all, you know, all three of those 
concepts, you know, as infrastructure, organisation, and spending a load of money. And what it then leads to is, is that any team that sort of comes close to battling, you know, or supplanting. So in other words, you get Dortmund have a final against Bayern, Bayern buy most of their better players, which then weakens Dortmund. Monaco got to the semi-final, played some fantastic football. They're already now being pretty much dismantled. I mean, Atletico Madrid, you'd say they haven't quite been, you know, dismantled, but you still lost Costa. You know, they've... You know, they, they lost uh, Sergio Aguero. And the sense is, is that, you know, they're <clears throat> having to, by building this new stadium, is, is that eventually... What's going to happen when Simeone leaves? You know, how long can they basically keep keep this up? That's that's a real sort of big question. So that's the thing. So in other words, whereby the previous years of the European Cup, what you had was there would be a narrative. There would be different things would be happening, and it would be related to international football. So in other words, when when you have the seventy four and the and the nineteen sixty six finals. They, they they influence what happens with the the European Cup. What you have now is is that because you you've got the the age of the gold standard teams, it doesn't really you know it, you could say that you know Spain's dominance you know comes from you know Real and Barca's dominance, but they're not really one. It's, it's basically you just have these two huge teams in Spain. And because they have a great generation of Spanish players, that then bleeds into the you know national team. But it, it doesn't quite... In other words, you get the situation where you have now, where it's basically... <clears throat> there isn't a huge amount of difference, really, between how the gold standard teams play. So if you look at it, you'd say... If you did an attacking defensive Venn diagram of all of the sort of top European clubs... You'd probably say defensively, you put Atletico in there, possibly Chelsea. You know, Juve, you probably put them in the middle between attacking and defensive. Yes, they are defensive, but at the same time, they still had in the intervening time years Higuan, Dybala, Tevez, you know, Pirlo, Paul Pogba, Arturo Vidal. They're, you know, you would. <laughs> You'd be doing them a disservice to call them an overtly defensive team. Probably on the defensive side, you'd say maybe Man U because they've won the Europa League under Jose in a fairly you know, somewhat defensive, you know, containment. But on the attacking side of the ledger, it's Real, Barca, Bayern, PSG. The ones on the outside looking in, you'd say Dortmund, Monaco City. There's not a huge difference in how they play. You know, they they're all playing silky, lovely football. I mean, you might say. You know, there's certain teams, you know, like you know, Liverpool in the way how they play and Dortmund under Jurgen Klopp, you know, was slightly different, but not, you know, now most teams have elements of pressing and, you know, elements of counter-attacking. So probably the last time that you really had a sort of, I suppose, a massively stylistic argument would be, you know, between sort of Real and Barca under Pep and Jose. But even then, it's two heavyweights, and you know you can understand <coughs> why you know Madrid had to be somewhat defend Real had to be somewhat defensive because they were coming up against this amazing monolith, you know, monolithically beautiful, fantastic attacking that you know Messi and Pep. But at the same time, it's not quite 
where where the European Cup used to be, where you would have you know massively differing styles that you could easily attribute to a league. You could say, okay, well the British will play like this, and so yeah, and but the Germans will play like this, the Italians will do this. And that's that's always going to sort of weaken to an extent because you've now got globalization, because players are moving between leagues and all the rest of it. But what what it hasn't done is created the the narrative and the competition. In other words, the the court finals and the Champions League are fairly predictable. You, you know, as I said in the last podcast, you sort of know who can beat who. You've got a pecking order, much in the same way that you could say about tennis, and to an extent, elements in golf. You know, when you have four or five great players, there's more than enough trophies for them all to win, and very rarely do they actually all end up at the same weekend doing really well. So what this then sort of leads to really is. The second point I wanted to kind of enlarge upon, you know, the real key question of why would the re-emergence of British clubs be good for the Champions League? Because I said a few times, I think that the English teams are going to, you know, rise up in Europe and they're on, there's potential there. But why would that be good for the Champions League? Well, look at it this way. So you'd have a situation where I think Leicester of the, or your, would be a, fan, or a fantastic case study. Because basically, they win the league, and I wouldn't say, you wouldn't say lucky, you wouldn't say fortuitous, they just took the moment, you know, they took, the chance was there, and they took it, with a block, with a plum. You have to give them a tremendous amount of credit, you know, they, you know, they won. They took their opportunity. But the, the, the thing that was fascinating was, is that, not only did they win, but they kept all of their players. Now, okay, you could argue in certain respects that, you know, in you know Kasper Schmeichel, in Jamie Vardy, in you know, even to an extent Rio Mars, they weren't household names. They yeah you know, they and Engolo Kante. They'd really apart from losing Kante, which I think had an impact, but at the same time they they kept the. the Bones of the squad, even though that they had bids for Mares, they had bids for Vardy, they kept them. They were financially independent, which is something that really Dortmund, even though bigger, much bigger club, weren't able to. They 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 can't retain you know their players from Bayern. In other words, I can see what Dortmund are trying to do. They're buying all of these fantastic young talents. So you got um, Usman Dembele, who they got from Rennes. They got Pusilic, who they came through their youth system, and now they're trying to you know buy someone like uh, Musa Dembele, the Celtic striker. You can see what they're doing. They're stockpiling this young talent, and they're just you know. And the idea being is that once in a while, you know, because you can see where Bayern are going. They're they're aging a bit, you know, in terms of Ribery, Robin, even Arturo Vidal. You've now had the Felipe Lam has retired. The the core of that team is is, is aging, and it's there's a question mark over the pl- younger players they signed. So um, Renato Sanchez, Kingsley Coman, whether they can replace them and maintain their level. So really, it's almost as if you can see with Dortmund, eh, wait a couple of years. At some point, Bayern will have an off year, and then we can you know we should be in a position then to win the league. But that's you know it's okay. We all know that Bayern probably won't win ten leagues in a row because. Everything has to go right for ten years. Players will age and all the rest of it. But yeah, winning the league over you know Bayern would be a fantastic achievement. But where what's next? You know, in other words, you know, can they essentially keep those players? 
you know, not only from England, but from Bayern. And can they then, you know, can that team mature in a way that the Ajax team weren't? So they won it in 95, but it then split up in the same way the Monaco team. That's the real question, you know, with Atletico. You know, can they replace, you know, when Simeone goes, I presume possibly in the next year, <coughs> I think he'll go to Italy. And can they replace him? And really, because part of the reason why Atletico have done so well is that, you know, when they had a great player, you know, they would sell that player, but then they were able to replace. So, in other words, you're almost going away from sort of Aguero to Costa, Costa to Griezmann, and they were able to... But you, how long can you keep that up? In other words, you know, their defence, you know, will, will, they will age together. And can they keep replacing those key constituent parts? And, you know, can they keep cocaine? and... Can they keep Griezmann? That's the real question. And really, in the long term, can they match Real and Barca? Yes, they're building a new stadium, but they're still not quite in the same financial league. You know, and I think the it, there's always that fear. You imagine, well, have they had their chance? In other words, when they were one 0 up in the third minute of injury time, was that their chance, or was that the penalty shootout when in Milan in the in the European Cup final? Was that their one opportunity. So they've already won the league, they've won the cup, they've won the Europa League, all fantastic achievements, but was that their one, yeah, their window? It's open-ended. I think it might have been their window. So you then got Monaco. Well, okay, the model works in terms of you buy all these young players, you know, you get them to play some lovely football, pump up the value, sell them on, but or can, in other words, you've had one great year where they finished, you know, in the, they've won the league, only over a few points over PSG, and they've got to the semi-finals. But now it's you know, you, you re, it's knocking down, it's being rebuilt again. Can they really, because of the size of the relative size of the club, can they do it what can they do it for a second year? In other words, they haven't been able really basically to say to their players, stay one more year and then we can have a crack at the Champions League. That's not really happened. So you've got real question marks over those sort of teams, whether they <clears throat> can really establish themselves as gold standard clubs. But if you look at the Premier League, I think the interesting point is is that the, the Premier League has got so much money that a team like Leicester are, in a sense, financially independent. So they've had this great run where they basically got to the quarterfinals, they won the league you know, a couple of years ago. <laughs> but now they want to return, and they possibly can do, which is interesting. So in other words, instead of saying, well, that was our moment, boys, you know, let's just you know, re-establish ourselves as a Premier League outfit and go from there, they're talking, and they have the money in terms of the ownership, and they've now got a template for success. You know, the same point. You, you know, rather than f focus on the top six, I'm going to really focus on the sort of bronze standard clubs. So you've got Southampton. You know, it's a fantastic place for an attractive. It's attractive for talented young managers because they've seen it with you know Coman, who, who, okay, probably I wouldn't say was a really super young manager, but. You know, that's where he's really burnished his reputation and been able to take that on. Same thing with Pochettino. And they've got the youth set up and they've got a bit of money. So, you know, they have a, the potential to kick on. You've got Everton, new stadium, proactive owner, good manager. West Ham, new stadium. You've got London. You know, a large revenue stream, relatively speaking. And you've got you know, Leicester. So those teams, and they've now got the thing of, if you just focus on the league for 38 games, and if you get the right balance between you know, your players and signings, if everything clicks, and because all of those teams have, you know, in terms of West Ham with Billich and Southampton, if they get you know another young, talented manager in, 
they've got the opportunity. If you look at it, there is a lot of young, talented managers in the Premier League. You, you know, you've got Eddie Howe, you've got Silva that's impressed since he came to Hull, and you've got someone like a uh, Gary Monk who's not. So you've got mid-level, you know, and you've even got someone like Dice. They, there's talent there in the league, and what you've now got is you've got the top seven that, you know, are going to all next season be in Europe, and for more often than not, will be in Europe. So, in other words, and because of the sort of the, the element of how draining the Premier League is, and, you know, if they, if the, you know, the better the English clubs do in Europe, the more games they have to play, the longer into the season, and then it increases the opportunities for those clubs. Even Newcastle, you look at the infrastructure, they've got a manager, they've got the fan base, and the Champions League history, you know, there's something that they can build on. I mean, the only thing that's probably holding Newcastle back to a certain extent is the ownership group, but if they do do well, you never know. Mike Ashley may well pour in a load of money. So, you know, without even discussing the top six, you've got all of these clubs that have money and are looking to have infrastructure, and have the desire to, to kick in, to cap, you know, to push on, and have the opportunity to get into the fourth place. And if they do, then you know. Whereby, if you compare that to the other leagues, well, you know, do you know are the other European leagues so deep? Do they have no not just a top six, or but you know four or five clubs in the middle who are really looking to kick on? Well, yeah, we discussed Seville. Seville, well, yes, but at the same time, you know, they're much happier being in the Europa League to an extent. And, you know, whether they can, you know, replace, you know, Emery and Monchi and the, you know, the managers now left as well. You know, whether they're able to keep that up, question mark. Valencia, well, a little bit of a mess, you know, with their stadium and all the rest of it and their ownership. You know, even got like a Fiorentina. They've had a certain amount of success, but they've never really been able to kick on in the Europa League. But those are teams that are finishing sixth and seventh, and and yet they don't really have the financial independence that you know Newcastle, Leicester, West Ham, Everton, Southampton have to really push on and really. So that's where the top six are under an element of pressure, whereby you don't necessarily have that in Spain. You don't really have that. You know, in in Italy, what you have is. You've got AC and Inter are the, you know, because they've they've fallen down from where they were, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. But it's interesting how they're looking to get back. They're following the Premier League model. So it's, we need new stadiums. So, you know, focus on revenue, in, in, enlarging the revenue, foreign ownership, focusing on trying the brand and getting to, you know, Serie A and Inter and AC out to, you know, Emerging markets, big spending. You know, in, in a sense, the infrastructure spend. You've got Lyon and Marseille. Some of that has elements of the Premier League. So they've got Frank McCourt come in, trying to pump you know a huge amount of money, trying to get them straight up back into you know the Champions League. So they're following Premier League <laughs> principles. That you know, it's not. It isn't a, a huge. You know that that's that's basically now really the model. You can do different things. I mean, I suppose you could say Leon have a decent, you know, Monaco have a, you know, that youth model, but that only takes you so far. That can't really get you much past kind of a silver grade. And you're always just constantly rebuilding. Whereby, you know, in the top, 
you know, in these kind of bronze clubs, there's a certain element of that, but they're just the bronze clubs. You've still now got six silver clubs who have, you know, who I'm going to discuss further on in the podcast, who really, you know, have the potential. So I think what that will then do is that, so you've got, that you've got a narrative. So in other words, can how are we going to, you know, who who will compete with the Premier League clubs and how? So you don't the the, the court finals won't be as predictable. There'll be more competition, a little bit more of a narrative. It will sort of weaken the influence of the gold standard clubs because they won't always be guaranteed a quarter final. So I think sometimes with Bayern, especially with Bayern, you get some players that join there, and it's almost as if well we're pretty much guaranteed a quarters or semis in Europe, guaranteed the league, and I think if that. <clears throat> that gets slightly weakened because you know there are key question marks over a lot of the gold standard clubs at the moment you know with, with Juve you, they're aging defensively how will they replace Buffon how will they replace the you know the BBC how will you replace those players and you know without dropping down the level and, you know and with their size of their stadium because it's not <clears throat> I don't believe it's much over 40,000 so it's not a huge stadium so there's only so much revenue that you can generate from that you know, the same thing is is with Bayern. It's like, well, they're aging somewhat. You know, what's their overarching philosophy? Because they've really, you know, with Pep, you can see what they were trying to do. And it didn't really quite work, especially at European level. And to an extent, you, you're almost thinking, well, how dependent on are they on, you know, Germany keep producing brilliant players? You know, how long can they really basically use, you know, Dortmund as a finishing school? You know, if, let's say... You know, there isn't as many great European, you know, great German players, or the, the German system doesn't produce great players, or, you know, someone like a Red Bull Leipzig keeps those players and buys them. If that sort of competition, how will they survive? You know, with Barca and Real, you're like, well, eventually you're going to have to replace Messi and Ronaldo, and how will you do that? You know, and maintain that sort of top level, whereby if you look at the, the Premier League, well, you've got. In the top six, you've got Klopp, Pochettino, Pep Guardiola, Mourinho, Wenger. They're all, you know, have fantastic. Yeah, they've got either brilliant records in terms of success. So that's more, you know, sort of Mourinho and Wenger and Pep. But then you've got these younger managers in terms of like Klopp, Pochettino, who you know have added something to the Premier League. Who the the style of football they are producing, you know, so. What you end up saying is, well, how, you know, which one of these clubs? So you look at Man City, what they've done. You know, they've had a somewhat of a poor season, but what they've done is they've now spent thirty-five million pounds on a goalkeeper, sixty million pounds, you know, on a attacking midfielder who basically has the same name as David Silva, the same height, same playing style. They've basically got a replacement for David Silva, you know, and yeah, there's an overlap in there, and they, you know, you, you think of. You know, if Jesus carries on the form, if they keep Aguero, you know, the potential is there. And they are simply going to spend and spend and spend. They've still got the youth system as well <coughs> that could burnish that. You know, with Chelsea, in terms of Conte and the record he has, you know, you've, there's so much, and the youth system that they have, they haven't really, you know, utilised it as well as they could do, but you have to still say that that's, that's there. You've got, you know, Liverpool and the style of football that they play, which will, I think, play a lot better in Europe than it necessarily does at home. 
I mean, I think they are absolutely primed because they you know, got a record of you know doing well in cup competitions, although they haven't won in the final, but they're getting better year on year, and it looks like they're keeping Coutinho. And I think it comes down to a certain point in the Premier League is that that's what the Premier League is good at. <laughs> You know, okay, with the top two, top two, possibly even top three teams in Spain, a lot of it is, well, we'll just buy the best that is off the shelf. So, you know, and that works to an extent. And that just gets you instantaneous, you know, performance. Whereby I think the Premier League is slightly better in terms of picking out, you know, play, you know unsung players and developing them into your top level players. Which I think is a little bit more... So I'd say it's where the Premier League, I think, has the potential in Europe is that it's a bit more self-sustaining. That all of these top six teams are all really, you know, all have a huge amount of talent. They all have, you know, sort of financial backing and they all have the managers and a way of developing players and finding players, you know, from Europe, from the lower leagues and getting, you know, and self-sustaining they're still spending huge amounts of money, I'm not denying that, but whereby they're not as reliant, you know, I think they're not, Look, if you look at Liverpool and if you look at Spurs, they're not hugely reliant on spending massive amounts of money. So if you think about it, you know, Spurs put a fair, you know, a, at least in terms of the transfer fee, a huge amount of money to Mrs. Soko. didn't really need him. You know, he didn't play a huge role in them finishing second. The same thing you could say with Liverpool. They're, they're, they're sort of spending in the £30 million mark. But they, you know, rather than getting someone with a you know, huge track record the last season, they got Manje, who'd done really well at, at Southampton. But you know, he, his record wasn't... He'd scored you know, 10, 13 goals. That's a nice thing, but that wasn't a guarantee of success, which is something that... you know. Real Madrid wouldn't countenance spending that sort of money and putting him straight into the team and seeing how it goes. To sign for Real Madrid, you have to be right up there, straight off the bat. They they just don't have... The pressure is, is too great. You know, Spurs have used youth players, signing younger players for you know not huge amounts of money in terms of like Deli Alley. I mean, Man United have spent quite a huge amount of money, but they still you know have elements of using their youth system. You know... So as a result, I think the competition between those clubs to just even get into the top four, and the you know the managerial, and I think that what will happen is is that because you've got the money, because you've got the managers, because you've got the infrastructure, I think you're going to start you know you're going to have players I think possibly gravitating to the Premier League more than they would have done maybe five te five years ago, because. I think that's where, you know, if you find the best managers are there, the best facilities, the best wages, and probably the most sense of competition. I think that's something that sort of has held back some players, you know, like uh, Zidane, Nedved, you know, because you can go to the Premier League and not succeed, like uh, Shevchenko, you know, even uh, Claudio Bravo. You know, it, was a, it was amazing, the drop-off between, you know, someone who's, you know, won treble, who's you know, won the Copa America twice in a row for Chile and who's done well with the World Cup, to then go to the Premier League and look so out of their depth. But I think the flip side of it is, is that you want to be part of that competition because even finishing the top four has an element of success. If you can have a player like Alexis Sanchez, who's basically scored 20-plus goals, double-figures assists, and yet they've still finished fifth, I think that's 
you know that's got that's got something positive whereby if you did that for a spanish team in you know you would probably be in the top four as long as you know if you did that for seville you'd be guaranteed top four possibly even top three if you put you know Alexis Sanchez into the seville team whereby and if you then put him at let's say inter or ac you'd imagine they would have been you know a lot closer to the top three and i think it's and I think that's the positive, is that they're both interrelated. Is that if you get a four or five British teams doing well in Europe on a regular basis, will then add something to the European Cup. And it does well for the Premier League, and it does well for you know the teams in the middle. In the end, all of this money <clears throat> has the potential. It's not a guarantee. But I think... I'll probably end on a slightly different point, is that if you look at, you know, the Accrington chairman at the end of the season, he um, went on a sort of Twitter rant about, you know, the Premier League and money. And the way how I would look at it is, is that, yes, the, you know, the FA and the Premier League could do more. I think they do, st- I, th- I think they do quite a bit, but they could do more, and I think they should do. And I think the government should you know, get involved to a certain extent in sort of making that mandatory. But the difference is, is that well, if you compare, if you compare the depth of the football pyramid in the UK with any other football country in the world, it's nowhere near as deep. It's nowhere near as varied. It's nowhere near as professional in terms of infrastructure, and in comparison to the size of the country itself. So if you look at it, I don't see. Real and Barcelona, the way how they've carved up the TV money over the last generation and how much that has then affected the rest of the Spanish league in creating this duopoly that's only now vaguely becoming close to, you know, a triopoly, is that if they're not really helping the team that's finishing bottom of La Liga in terms of making the overall league 1 through 20 very competitive, then compare it with English clubs... In, in such a hyper-competitive market, because this is what it is. If you want, and this is what, you know, the media and British fans are basically saying, is we want success in Europe, and yet we're so so thin lines because all of those other gold standard clubs are dominant in their home market, and yet the Premier League is spending money on helping, basically, prop up teams like, you know, the Division League 2, which, although it does help the strength of English football, that's, you know, a strong League 2 does not lead you to the European Cup final. You know, not in the modern game. So that it has the potential to make the Champions League more interesting, and it makes the Premier League more interesting. And even, and even if you look at it, even if there is a decline of English players and British players playing in the Premier League, I think if you compare the, the sort of players that were playing in the Premier League who were English in 95-96 who weren't anywhere close to the national squad and never got any caps or anything like that with the players now who are on the verge or on these sort of outskirts of the English squad I'd just have to say that people like Mark Noble, people like Harry Winks those players are more better technically and what you'll have is and this is where I think you know, and if you look at the success we've had in the under-18s World Cup and the success that the under-20s are having at the moment, is that you the playing pool is smaller, but those players are better. 
whether that translates to so that's international level, who knows? I mean, if you look at the sort of the young players we have at the moment, the sort of generation we have in terms of, you know, Kane, Ali, you know, you lost his cheeks, they the you know, even the sort of Harry Maguire, even, you know, keen at um Burnley, you know, the success we've had with Pickford, it's there. And I think that that's a sign that Overall, we've got a strong football pyramid. You know the potential is there to you know reassert themselves in Europe, and you've got the national team at all levels improving. Then, I think the future is looking really bright for the Premier League, and I think for European football in general, that I think will make people more likely to tune in. Whereby I think previously, I think a lot of you know, interest in the Champions League, I think, was almost propped up by the fact that it was on um, terrestrial TV. So, in other words, you could just basically turn on your TV and watch it. And I think that... And it's a... I think if you look at it, it's not really a huge surprise that once you've taken it off terrestrial, that a load of those people haven't really started to tuning back in. But I think if you then get the Premier League back, you know, dominant in Europe... I think most people are more likely to, you know, tune in. And that that can only be a good thing. Thanks a lot. <laughs>